This morning, or this week, I was thinking about examples and how we can use examples in our lives and in the lives of our children, the lives of those that we teach. But as I was thinking about examples, there was a phrase that as I thought about it, I realized that phrase nullifies the good use of an example. Have you ever used this phrase? Why can't you be like, and fill in the blank. Ever use that? Now, there's a problem with that. Because as soon as you use that phrase, that example becomes, in a sense on my part, I know someone will agree with this, but, but of a bit of a manipulation. It's, it's holding someone up and saying, you know, you don't measure up. You're, you're not good enough. You're not, my kids are going like this. You're not, you know, doing that kind of thing. And, and uh, what, I'm, what I'm doing and producing in them is a sense of pressure and a, a sense of guilt. You might be surprised by this, but when I was little, I was a bit precocious. I was a little bit, I didn't, I kind of pushed things. And it was not good to try to manipulate, when I was little, me to obedience. I didn't handle that very well. I know I've told the story already, but I can, at least the story's told, I don't really remember it. But I was about four years old, and I was being a typical four-year-old in a typical kind of traditional Baptist church. We didn't have children's church, so you had to sit through the service, and you know you had to sit still during the service, which to me was an absolute impossibility. Even still, I can't do that. And my mother leans over in the midst of my richiness, that's a good German name, term, and says in my ear, why can't you be like that little boy up there? I stood up on the pew and said, where? What little boy? It went from suggestion to discipline very quickly. And the problem was when I do that, I, I produce pressure. I, I, it produces guilt. It produces, you know, that sense of you just don't measure up. You're not good enough. But then there's the other side. If you're the one that's being compared to. When we were in Disney World years ago, Nicole was like four years old. And we took her to, to Disney World and she was just enamored with the place and just overwhelmed by it. And she was angelic the whole day. And I remember standing in line and hearing these parents behind us go, why can't you be like that little girl? Man, I was so filled with pride. I'm such a good parent. Yeah, right. But that is so... It's such a wrong way to use an example. But there is a right way. Now, I'm going to date myself. I played soccer in, in, in high school. And at the time that I played soccer, there was a soccer player who was at that time and among, among some is still considered one of the best soccer players in all of history. 
man by the name of Pele. When I was in high school, Pele was the epitome of soccer. He was an amazing player. His ability with ball control, his ability to, to move through defense was, was absolutely astounding. There was one particular play I remember watching him do where he was moving towards a defender and the defender moved in on him to try to defend him. And Pele passed himself the ball. He passed the ball about 10 yards ahead, ran around the defender, picked up the pass and took the shot. Pele had almost 1,300 career goals. He was the epitome of ball control. The epitome of a soccer player. In the mid-70s, he went to play for New York and played for the Cosmos. He had all of his life played on the national teams, but he was an amazing player. And in high school, our coach would say, go watch Pele. Now, we didn't have the kind of coverage that you have today, but every so often they would have video of of the World Cups and they would have a, a game where he was playing and you got to watch Pele. He watched how as he was running down the field and it was open, his eyes were up and he was looking to where he was going. But when he got into the crowd, his, his focus would focus down more upon the paw and the, the feet of the people. And you, you saw how he would, would work. And the coach would say, watch Pele. But there was something about Pele. Every single one of us knew we were never going to be like him. Not fully. He was the epitome. He was the most outstanding example. And though we aspired, we were never going to make that. But the coach did something really excellent. Because as we were playing, as we were practicing, he took Pele and applied it to our setting. I remember one young man taking the ball and grabbing the ball and he was a halfback and and the ball went to a midfielder and he took the ball and he began to run it down the sidelines and as he was running down the sidelines his eyes were up and he was watching where he was going and as the defenders came in on him his his eyes went down and he, he chose to control the ball. He didn't have the footwork like Pele but when he did that in the midst of the of the practice the coach would stop and say stop. That was like Pele. That was like Pele. Now the player would say, have a sense of encouragement, and the rest of us would say, we want to be like that, knowing we could never be Pele, but we could do what just happened there. When one of the... the forwards would grab the ball and he would take that ball and he would move it through the crowd. The good coach would stop and say, that was like Pele. And we were encouraged and excited, thrilled. If you have your Bibles or grab one down on the seat beneath you and you turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. 
Paul is dealing with a team of ministry. Not soccer, but those involved in being a part of the body of Christ. And he is doing here with an example what a great coach will do. He will hold up to the Corinthians, the the best of all players, the quintessential example. If you want the, 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 the Pele of spiritual reality, it's probably blaspheming, but it's Jesus. Look at Jesus. Now, none of us are ever going to be just like Jesus. We, we aspire in that direction. But then what Paul does is he takes Jesus. And in the midst of the match says, stop. Look at the way, and he uses the Macedonian church, the church around Philippi, and says, that was like Jesus. The Macedonians are encouraged, and we're challenged, not in competition, not in a sense of why can't I live up to, not in a sense of guilt or pressure, but of an excitement to know in my life, I can be like Jesus. Now, as we come to 2 Corinthians chapter 8, we're in that transition where Paul changes from dealing with his ministry to the Corinthian church and dealing with the conflict that had existed between the church at Corinth and Paul and, and dealing with the fact that they were rejecting Paul and therefore they were rejecting the gospel message. And he's brought that to an end and he's encouraged them to, to renew this relationship and renew their commitment to the gospel and to go back to being what their relationship was like. They're they're putting it back together. And he shifts from that focus to a focus on grace. And last week, you remember, we looked at grace as it's used in chapters 8 and 9 of 2 Corinthians. And we said, Paul develops a whole theology of grace. That the word is used 10 times in these two chapters and used six different ways in those 10 different times and five of them in just the first few verses. And we came up with a theological statement. Grace is the extravagant, unmerited kindness of God bestowed upon those who receive his grace through faith. That's where salvation begins, but it doesn't end there. Grace is not just our salvation, it's our life. As God continues to pour his unmerited favor into our lives. And one of the ways he does that is by giving us an opportunity to serve him. He gives us the favor. He gives us the privilege of being involved in his work. And so grace is exemplified in our lives through our God-enabled acts of unmerited service to others. Grace brings us into a relationship with God. Grace sustains our relationship with God. And grace enables our relationship and service to one another, culminating in God being praised that's the overview 
Now, let's look at what Paul does as he applies it. He takes that theology of grace and he says, now let's see how that works out in your life. How that works out in my life. How that works out in the Corinthian church. How that works out in the Macedonian church. The church that Paul is at when he's writing this this epistle. And what Paul declares to us is this. Emulate. Follow the example Be like them as they are like Christ, those who understand the gracious, God-given privilege of serving others. Not the burden, not the responsibility, not the obligation, the privilege, the favor. That is ours when we have opportunity to serve others. Now Paul begins by giving us an example. In fact, he gives us two. And in this passage, he does one of those enveloping. He does one of those where he begins and he ends the the paragraph with, with an example. And the two examples, he says, this is the way to live out grace. This is the way to be a gracious person. This is the way to do grace. He begins with the Macedonians and ends with Jesus. In the opening illustration, he begins with the teammates. And he ends with Pele. But I want to begin with Pele. I want to begin with Jesus. And as you're reading down through that passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, and you come to verse 9, the the verses I forgot to put up on the slide. Sorry, Gene. But in those verses, you see the ultimate example. You see what grace is to look like. You see what grace is to act like. You see what grace is to to be like in our lives as we grace one another. And he declares there that Jesus is the ultimate example of gracious service. Jesus is the ultimate example of what it means to be doing grace. Not just simply to accept it, but to be involved in it. For he says in verse 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. And the way Paul writes that, when he does that phrase where he says, Y'all know, this is the southern all, all y'all. And then he goes on to say, oh, y'all know this. And he writes it in a way that is very liturgical, very formal when he says, our Lord Jesus Christ. And some, and I think they're probably right, see this as, as an anthem that was spoken or sung in the churches as they would gather together and they would think about Christ and they would think about the example that was before them as they got together as a church, as they got together as a group of people, they would cry out in the midst of those gatherings. The Lord Jesus Christ was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. It was so much a part of the very theme of what it meant to be a Christian. 
Paul not only is declaring sort of a liturgical statement, he goes on and says, this is about you. And the emphasis is, this wasn't for Jesus. This didn't, Jesus didn't need anything. This wasn't something he did for his own sake. Uh, Paul writes it in Philippians that it says there that though he existed in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be grasped. In other words, something to be used primarily for his own purposes. What he did, he did for you. And what he did, as Paul writes this, goes beyond just the incarnation, just the God becoming man, the God in Christ, God, the triune God, in the second person of the Godhead, chose to take upon himself flesh. But it goes beyond that. And the sense is not just the incarnation, but his life and his ministry and his interactions and his crucifixion and his death and his resurrection, and his ascension, all of it. Jesus, who had all of the splendor of heaven, all of the majesty of heaven, all of the wonder of heaven, all of the display of his glory and majesty, gave up the enjoyment of it to live a, in comparison, poverty life. For you. So that you in faith and accepting what he did, he did, he did, that you might be fully rich in spiritual reality. You now have a relationship with the God of the universe. The God who said, eh, let there be light. Creation came into existence. The God who so set it up that centuries ago we knew that tomorrow the sun would be blocked by the moon because the timing and the perfection was so great. That God came and lived. So that you might enjoy the richness that was his. That's our example. Without being disrespectful, that's our Pele. But the difference between Pele and a high school soccer team player doesn't even compare to the difference between Jesus and me. But there's the example. There's the quintessential. Be like Jesus. But if you're like me, I, I can look at that and say, I can't be perfect like that. What does it mean in my life? What does it look like as a, you know, Christian living out the day-by-day experience of having that from Jesus? Well, Paul gives us another example. And if you kind of go back and begin there in chapter 8 and verse 1, the example is the Macedonian church. He says, here are gracious, generous believers in our present day that look a bit like Jesus. 
that are acting like Jesus. And we can be like that. Chapter 8 and verse 1, he describes them. He says, now brothers, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian church. Notice, out of their most severe trial... Their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. Paul says they're this. Their incredible suffering brought forth joy. And their rock-bottom poverty, literally, Paul uses the words, they are poor to the very bottom. Develop generosity. And we look at that and we say, how? When I'm suffering, when, when, when I'm in the midst of the tribulation, when, when I'm in the midst of the difficulty, when, when my character is being tested by suffering, my natural tendency is to be upset, to be, to be angry, to be frustrated. Paul says they were joyous. And when I have so very little, my natural tendency is to hoard, to hold on. Paul says, now, they overflowed in generosity. And then he describes it. He says, first of all, like them. We should be like Jesus, who are generous, responding to the opportunities that God gives us beyond what would be expected. Beyond what we could say, oh yeah, I would expect them to do that. But even more than that. Again, Paul describes that as he goes on there in verse 3 to, to describe the, 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 uh, the, the Macedonian church. He says, For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their, their ability. Literally, in the original languages, it says, To their ability and beyond their ability. They understood God's grace in them that would allow them to be a part beyond what would be just basically expected. He says more about them. He says they weren't coerced into doing it. He said they did it entirely on their own. And some believe, and I think they're probably right, that what it's basically saying is Paul didn't even tell them about this collection that he was taking for the church in Jerusalem because the Macedonians were so poor. The Macedonians were so much in the midst of the struggle that he just thought, you know what, they're not really going to be a part of it. They can't really do that. They can't afford it. And so they didn't hear about it from Paul. But if you will know anything about the Christian community, it's a very small community. And they began to hear, you know, Paul's taking a collection for the church in Jerusalem. He's taking a collection from the Gentiles to show that the Gentiles support the the Jewish Christians. And even without being asked, even without having their heartstrings tugged, even without any kind of manipulation, they said, please, let us be a part of it. 
I mentioned last week, it's so seldom that you hear somebody come up in church and say, please let me serve. Please let me help out with pioneers. I, I beg you. But that was the attitude of the Macedonians. Please let us do this. It's such a privilege. It's such an opportunity. You mean I can be a part of what God is doing? I can be a part of demonstrating the unity within the body of Christ? I can show that there's neither Jew nor Greek nor male nor female. I can show that there's no division in those ways. You mean I can be a part of that? Where do I sign up? On the back table under the what's happening. But he goes on. He says they they responded beyond what we could even imagine. And they responded without any kind of coercion. Even without us telling them about it. And then he says. And they urgently pleaded with us. For the privilege. For the privilege. They didn't see serving as an obligation. They didn't see serving as a responsibility. They didn't see serving as a burden. They saw it as a privilege. And they pleaded to be a part. And then finally, like them, we should respond not only in giving, but also doing service to others. When he talks about the the service to the saints, it's literally the deaconing to the saints. They wanted to be a part of what God was doing. What's our attitude? Do we see the opportunities that God gives us, whether it's in church or whether it's through Crisis Pregnancy Center or whether it's through a walk in the, in the park for life or whatever it is, do we see them as a privileged opportunity? Not requirement. Not burden. Not obligation. If we see it that way, we have the wrong motives. And we need to examine our hearts. For Paul goes on and says, not only can I show you their example, I can show you their motivation. How could they do this? How could they have this attitude? How could they see giving to the saints even though they couldn't afford it? How could they see it as a privilege? How could they see it as an honor? Paul says they had the right motivation. They have the right understanding. And as he develops the passage after he's given the example in verse 3, it says, this is how they did it. I'm sorry. Um, I'm, verse, I'm in verse 5. This says, this is how they did it. They didn't do as we expected. But they gave themselves, now notice the order. First to the Lord. Then to us, according to God's revelation. The first thing that Paul says in terms of their motivation is like them. Our motivation is to be Christ-centered. 
We're to see the opportunities that God places before us to use our resources, to use our finances, to use our time, to use our ability as an opportunity to be a part of what God and Jesus is doing. It is Christ-centered. I seek to serve the Lord. And here's the opportunities. Grace acts are not motivated by a desire to impress or to receive recognition. It's not done so that I'll get some kind of applause. One of the ways to tell if that's your motivation is to see what happens when you don't get the applause. And you feel frustrated. Frustrated because even when you do get the applause, it'll never be enough. Or maybe you feel that sense that I sometimes struggle with is, I'm the only one serving. No one else is involved. How can I have that attitude if I see it as a privilege? It's Sarah's birthday today. Now she's mad at me. And we're going to have cake. And when they slice up the cake, if someone in the family says, I don't want any, our response is good. It's more for us. If we're serving to serve Christ, you don't want to do it, great. It's more opportunity. I may not be able to do it. I, I may not be able to respond. I may not have the resources, the gifting, or the time, or the talent. But great. Grace acts are not motivated by a sense of guilt. Oh, if I'm going to be a good Christian, I need to. People who are motivated by guilt in their service burn out very quickly. Because they never do enough to sponge their guilt. Grace acts are not motivated by a sense of pressure or compulsion. One of the worst ways to motivate people in church is through guilt. You ought to. You should be. Every Christian. Why can't you be like that Christian over there? See, those that are motivated by a sense of pressure or, or, or a sense of, 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 of compulsion leads to resentment. How dare you ask me? But when we are motivated first to the Lord, the attitude is one that says, thank you, God. For letting me love you. Letting me love others. And let, do, let me doing that. Which is faithful and pleasing to you. But the other thing that Paul says in terms of their motivation. Is like them. We are to be motivated to conform to the standards of scripture. Before I can give to you. I have to give to the Lord. But I have to understand scripture. Understand something, believer, I mean, beloved, not every need is a call for me to be involved. Not every opportunity am I going to be able to respond to. I may not have the gifting. If you can't sing, please don't join the worship team. 
Unless you can play an instrument. Then if you can't preach, if you can't teach, don't, don't come up here. Sometimes we don't have the resources. The opportunity to give is there, but I don't have any money left. I, I can't even dig deeper. Okay. That is the scripture tells us that there are standards, there are ways to understand. And as Paul is developing this, we'll see this next week. He says, our desire is not that others might be relieved while you are pressed, but that there might be equality. If you're capable and you have the resources, see it as a privilege. If not, okay. At the present time, your plenty will supply what they need so that in turn their plenty will supply what you need. Then there will be equality as it is written. He who gathered much did not have too much and he who gathered little did not have too little. What what Paul is saying is here, there are parameters to understand. Understand God's scripture. God isn't saying every time there's an opportunity, you better do it. He's saying look at scripture. If we just look at Jesus and we saw him who gave up everything for us, we might see, ah, okay, that means monasteries. That means vows of poverty. No, look at the whole of scripture and ask God, what are you calling me to be about? Paul says they were motivated first to give themselves to Christ. Then in accordance to the word of God, they gave to us. The last thing that Paul does is he provides an invitation. And he says, come, join us. As you continue to read down through there, he begins to apply what he says. And in verse 7, he says this, But just as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in your love for us, see that you excel in grace. I'm not commanding you. The gentleness of Paul's words here are astounding. He says, I'm not putting an obligation on you. I'm not putting a responsibility on you. I'm inviting you. It's an invitation. I'm inviting you to see In yourself, the sincerity of your love. Paul says this isn't a command. When we get up and give the announcements and say we need pioneer teachers, we need we need discovery class teachers, we we we're, we want to collect for this organization or we want to do that, it's not a demand. It's not an obligation. It's an invitation. It's saying, take a look at your life. Maybe you're not able to be a part of it, but that's okay. It's an invitation. An invitation to be a part of something great. And if you have the the means and the Lord is leading you, do so. Again, there are things in in church and things in the community that, that, you know, we're not, some of us are not able to do. God isn't saying, well, if there's a need for preaching and you better step up. Now, if you're not gifted in that way, 
say, gee, wish I was, but I'm not. If, if we come and say, there's an opportunity to give, to, to, to give to crisis pregnancy, to, to give to Haiti, to, to give to benevolence, to give to the support of the church. If I'm not able to, God says it's an invitation. Now, there are some things all of us can do. All of us can teach children. All of us can, can serve with the fellowship time. All of us can, can do those kinds of things. All of us can give of our wealth to others. But Jesus says, Paul, sorry, Paul says it's not an obligation. It's an opportunity. Do you know how you know whether or not you view it as an opportunity or as an obligation? Is how disappointed you are when you can't do it. If we get up and we say, you know, there's a walk for, for life that's taking place. And my attitude is, man, I'm glad I got something going on that weekend. Then we haven't seen it as an invitation. But if my attitude is, wow, I can do that. Oh, man, I can't make it. That says I see it as an invitation. And if we fail to see things as an invitation, God says, take a look at your heart. God allows us to be a part of his work. He invites us. He gifts us. He resources us. And he invites us. If my attitude in response to that is one of frustration or anger or guilt or irritation. God says, take a look at your heart. But if mostly my attitude, if I can't do it, is disappointment. And if I can do it, it's excitement. Then God says, we have a heart of grace and of service. And that's like Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the example of the Macedonians. We pray, Lord, that we would be like them in what we do. We pray that we would be motivated like them as they are a reflection of your son. Father, may we be those that understand that the opportunities to ministry are not an obligation. They're not a burden. They're a privilege. Father, change our hearts. It's your grace that changes our hearts to allow us to see the opportunities that way. Father, grace begins by placing our faith and trust in what your son accomplished and the relationship we have with you. And as we do each Sunday morning, we invite anyone here who doesn't know your son as their savior, doesn't understand what that's about to come and speak to me or someone about that. But Father, at that moment that we trust in your son, you make us a part of your body. You provide us with your grace. You indwell us with your spirit. And it is your grace work that changes our heart to seek to serve you by serving others. Help us to have that attitude in all we do. And we pray to the name of your son. Amen.